The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So Russia has had in in Ukraine itself in the past in the uh, Crimea annexation what were called little green men, so people who were not wearing uniforms, but were clearly Russian military, who were part of the seizure of Crimea. Uh, Pakistan sent its own forces to help uh, the Taliban fight at different times in its history in Afghanistan, again, taking off their uniforms. Uh, So Russia, which is very suspicious and very paranoid, when it hears rhetoric that the United States or its allies are encouraging people to go to fight, and that it sees people actually showing up, it's going to be suspicious that these are not individual volunteers, but rather that this is part of a concerted program, especially if these people have significant military experience or links to regular uh, traditional armed forces. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, March 30th, 2022. In the hours following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine's foreign minister tweeted out a call for what he called an international legion of fighters to come to Ukraine and fight against Russia. And so far, it seems that some have heeded that call. Today, I talked with Daniel Byman, Lawfare's foreign policy editor and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, about foreign fighters and what to make of the inflow of them into Ukraine. Byman is the author of a book on foreign fighters, and we talk through the history of foreign fighters in different conflicts, how to think about the inflows into Ukraine, and what the downsides might be of the phenomenon of foreign fighters traveling to Ukraine. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 30th, Foreign Fighters in Ukraine. All right, Dan, so almost three years ago, you came on the Lawfare Podcast to talk about your book about foreign fighters. And I want to start this interview the same way that that one was started, which is, what is a foreign fighter? So people use different definitions, but usually it's a national from one country who travels to a different country to fight. And he, and it's usually, but not always a he, um, he is doing it not for financial reasons, so it's not a mercenary, but out of some sense of solidarity and ideology. Also, that individual there's some debate about where to draw the line in that if someone is, in the Ukraine case, say, a Ukrainian resident of the United States and they return to Ukraine to fight, do they count as foreign or not? So there are lines you can draw. But in general, it's a, a relatively straightforward, non-national traveling somewhere to go to fight. 
So Dan, we'll dig into some of the specific strains of this as we go along, but I wonder if you could just give us a bit of the history of foreign fighters, right? So I think some people will be familiar with the term in the context of the Islamic State, but you know, as you've written about and as others have written about, it's a it's a history that goes back way further than that. So if you go back, you know, really far back in time, the idea that people would cross borders to fight. Um, in the name of a cause is pretty common. You have people fighting for religion all the time and showing up in different areas in the American Revolution. If you want to go back, you have people like uh, Lafayette um, who play you know important roles and are there by George Washington's side. Um, so this is certainly something that happens again and again in history, but it becomes much more important at a popular level in the 20th century. And we see tens of thousands of people motivated to go fight on behalf of communism. So there are a lot of volunteers who go to Russia or who go to other places because they're motivated by that left-wing excitement that characterized early enthusiasm after the Russian Revolution. We see this again with the Spanish Civil War, where you have, again, thousands of people going to fight fascism. And it seems that every single person who went from the United Kingdom and the United States felt compelled to write a memoir. So you have a huge <laughs> literature from this community for you know people like George Orwell, Auden shows up, um, others, Hemingway, others are there and are writing great works of literature and poetry, but many are also fighting. In the Israeli War of Independence, you have a large number of people who come from other countries to fight on behalf of Israel. And some of these are names people might not expect. So Vidal Sassoon talks about how important his experience was in fighting for Israel. The sexologist, uh, Dr. Ruth uh, Westheimer, was a sniper for the Israeli army. Uh, so you uh, get, you know, again, people you wouldn't quite expect. And then you have another wave starting with Afghanistan, where you start to get people who are going to fight jihad. And early on, Afghanistan really doesn't excite much attention in the broader Muslim world. But as the war and the Soviet brutality start to increase, it begins to capture popular imagination. And you have thousands of people go to Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union. And although their military impact in the 1980s was, was basically zero, they were largely incompetent and, and played little role. This was part of a founding myth of the jihadist world that persists to this day. And many of the people who fought not only found al-Qaeda, but also go on to found important insurgencies throughout the Muslim world. It's a really pivotal event for this community. And so what comes of that all of that history when the Islamic State gets established in, in the 2010s? So what made the jihadist wave different from many previous waves is what happens when many of the foreigners return. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that general problem, then talk about the Islamic State in particular. Uh, so when we talk about previous waves, there was concern that people who returned from fighting on behalf of communism or people who fought for various left-wing organizations in Spain would come back and be Soviet spies or otherwise be assisting in the struggle uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union, but on the wrong side. Often it was the opposite. You have people like Orwell who went to Spain and come back embittered towards communism. But this concern was that that experience is going to shape them for the rest of their lives. When people start to go to Afghanistan in the 1980s, and then you have groups like Al-Qaeda, what we see is people coming back to different countries and trying to form insurgent groups 
and in some cases using terrorism. And the big Al-Qaeda terrorist attacks are done by people who were foreign fighters. So the 1998 embassy attack, the 2000 attack on the warship USS Cole, and of course 9-11. These are done by people who had traveled to and fro to Afghanistan. So when the Syrian civil war happens, a tremendous concern is that this event, which is electrifying many people throughout not just Muslim-majority countries, but Muslims around the world, uh, that it's going to lead to another wave of terrorism comparable to what happened in Afghanistan. And we start to see thousands and then tens of thousands, and in the end, over 40,000 foreigners go to volunteer to fight on behalf of the Islamic State. And while they're there, they prove to be some of the most brutal people there. And they have a very you know, dangerous impact on that conflict, a conflict that was already horrific. They make it much worse. They're zealous. They don't have ties to the local community, so they're quite brutal. Um, and uh, however, they're highly motivated, so the Islamic State seeks them out. Um, some of these people do become involved in international terrorism. It's not as many as we initially feared when the war broke out, but very important attacks that were quite consequential, like the 2015 Paris attack, do have links to uh, foreigners who went to fight and then who came back. Um, so this is another big event in the history of foreign fighters that people look to for lessons. Yeah, so I think that's a helpful context to get into what's been happening in Ukraine. So the night of the Russian invasion, the night that it began, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs, tweeted out that you know foreigners who are willing to defend Ukraine can join the, the International Legion of, of Territorial Defense of Ukraine. And that's that anecdote, along with a comment from President Zelensky, is how you began your lawfare piece about the subject. I'm curious, like, what was your initial reaction to seeing that to seeing that sort of call for action from from people within Ukraine and just sort of the first days of of developments in in Ukraine vis-a-vis foreign fighters. So I get very concerned about privatizing war. Uh, I think that whether countries should or should not go to war in Ukraine or any other country is is a very complex decision. But I really don't want the citizens of any country deciding on their own when to fight and when not to fight in a foreign war. Um, This can lead to a lot of violence in the country, as we saw in Iraq and Syria with ISIS. Um, It can also lead to a lot of negative consequences when people return. Um, So I was initially quite concerned about this. But there are a lot of, you know, I'll put my professor hat on, there are a lot of what we call variables that are going to shape the experience of the people who go there. So one question is simply, who's going? Right? Is it people who have a lot of military experience, who have a lot to offer the Ukrainian military, or is it a bunch of young but untrained and undisciplined people who really don't know what they're doing and are in some ways going to do more harm than good? Uh, there are questions about whether they'll be integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces or sent off on their own, and those have different costs and different um, advantages. Um, and then a lot depends on the attitudes of their originating government. Are they going to have support for when they go? Or are they going to be monitored on return? Um, How does the government see them? Will it care for them when they're in the war zone? So it raised a lot of questions to me, and I I think we're still awaiting answers. It's a lot to unpack there. I I wonder just as a starting place, you know, it's been close to a month since the war started and, you know, around a month since you wrote your initial piece for Lawfare. To what extent do we know the answer to any of those variable questions? Some of them are obviously sort of unanswerable 
until everything wraps and until, you know, people head back home. But do we have a sense of, of what the rough answers to any of those things are so far? So it does seem that the Ukrainian government is trying to integrate these people in a coherent way, that it's not simply welcoming volunteers and kind of pushing them towards the front lines. So we do see that um, some of them are being, you know, trying to be organized, you know, for example, making sure they speak the same language. So Canadians often end up with Americans for, for obvious reasons. In addition, they're trying to make sure that they're subordinate within broader command and control of the Ukrainian military. Now, this always comes under pressure in difficult military situations where units often act with a lot of independence. But from what I can tell, um, and I would stress there's a lot I don't know, it does seem that they're trying to make sure that there's some degree of training, there's some degree of coordination, and that these units are simply not going off on their own. The attitudes of governments um, are a bit in flux. One thing that does tend to generate foreign fighters in general is when you have a very high-profile conflict, so Syria in the past, and of course Ukraine today, uh, but also the governments in question the, the, uh, around the world are seeing this as a struggle of good versus bad. So the rhetoric around the world, I think rightly, stresses the evil of Russia and the need to defend Ukraine. So not surprisingly, people around the world uh, take that seriously. And so we're starting to, we've seen a lot of motivation of individuals, but when you have that, it's harder for governments to say, we're 100% behind the Ukrainian people, but we're blocking our own people from going to make a difference, from going to fight. And although I do uh, believe in being extremely careful with foreign fighters, that poses a political challenge for a government to be able to walk that line between support, but limiting the actions of its own people. And, and so I want to dive a bit deeper into your concerns here. So maybe it's helpful to break them out into sort of short-term concerns, you know, concerns about the impact of foreign fighters on how the actual conflict takes place, and then sort of longer tail concerns. So you alluded to a few of them in your initial answer here, but I wonder if you could talk through just in terms of the unfolding of the actual conflict, right? What are the things that give you some concern or some worry when you see stories about inflows of foreign fighters? So one thing I should caveat my remarks is that when we talk about things like uh, Afghanistan um, or other conflicts, we're often talking about insurgencies or conflict where the scale of military operations is more limited and the warfare itself is more decentralized. There's a lot more mixing of civilian and non-civilians. And so, of course, in Ukraine, we're seeing very high intensity conflict. I mean, these are armies clashing in incredibly deadly ways with you know, very high degrees of firepower. And that places a premium on some degree of training. And you know, depending on which particular Twitter feed you're reading at the moment, you can see that there are some people who have you know, significant military backgrounds going to fight. But it's also, there's a lot of reporting saying a lot of the people are simply highly motivated uh, young people who have no experience. And that's going to be one of the big challenges for Ukraine in general, is how to take advantage of what these people are offering, which is their, their zealotry and willingness to fight, but the need to train them. And this, you know, good training takes time. And this is a challenge for Ukraine in general, because they have a lot of ordinary citizens who are Ukrainian, who also want to fight, who have not received significant training. So my sense from the, the warfare right now is Ukraine's problem is not really human power. They have plenty of volunteers. It's 
to make sure that the people are trained at a certain level and are armed at a certain level. And the influx of more foreigners who are unskilled doesn't really help that problem. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And is there sort of looking, you know, over the course of however many iterations of, of the pattern of foreign fighters rushing to you know, whatever conflict, is there a traditional profile of who this this person is, right? You mentioned that they're predominantly, overwhelmingly male, but are there other sort of demographic factors that that look consistent when you when you look over time? Uh, so you know, certainly, young males. Uh, in the past, we've seen uh, people who have some degree of, often we say, blockage in their own lives. So it's not the people who are uh, seeing themselves as highly successful. Uh, and so it doesn't mean that they're completely down and out or impoverished, but they're often uh, not achieving, not, they're not in the place where they want. So the war is a sense uh, for them to find some degree of greater meaning in their life. But one of the patterns in the past is simply how all over the map many of the people are. So except for the idea of being relatively young and very male, there tends to be a lot of variation on income, education levels, past experiences, and so on. It's, it's too early to tell. Uh, for Ukraine right now, we're simply getting a bunch of anecdotes. But uh, I would be surprised if we saw one consistent recruiting profile. So another short-term concern that you mentioned, which which I suppose could also be construed as a longer-term concern, is the way that foreign fighters might contribute inadvertently to certain narratives that the Russian government might push, right? So that, you know, you wrote that Russia is likely to see foreign fighter inflows as, as part of, you know, a secret attempt by Western governments to support the Ukrainian war effort. I thought that was a, a super interesting point. I'm wondering if you could break that out a bit more and, and talk about that here. So one thing Russia itself has done and other governments have done in the past is had its own soldiers take off their uniforms and encourage them to fight elsewhere. So Russia has had in, in Ukraine itself in the past, in the uh, Crimea annexation, what were called little green men. So people who were not wearing uniforms, but were clearly Russian military, who were part of the seizure of Crimea. Uh, Pakistan sent its own forces to help uh, the Taliban fight at different times in its history in Afghanistan, again, taking off their uniforms. Uh, So Russia, which is very suspicious and very paranoid, when it hears rhetoric that the United States or its allies are encouraging people to go to fight, and then it sees people actually showing up, it's going to be suspicious that these are not individual volunteers, but rather that this is part of a concerted program, especially if these people have significant military experience 
or links to regular uh, traditional armed forces. And so this is something governments have done. This is something Russia has done. And to my knowledge, I don't think it's something the United States is doing or U.S. allies in many European countries. Uh, but there are different degrees of, I'll say, encouragement. You know, one degree is simply saying to people, you know, you are ordered to take off your uniform and go fight, which Russia has done in the past. Uh, but there are ways to say, you know, go ahead and do this. You won't be punished. Uh, we admire you if you're doing this. On and on and on. There's a lot of variation between absolute support and absolute rejection. And Russia is going to watch this very carefully. This does lead to one thing I'm tremendously concerned about, which is what happens if an American or for that matter, the national of another government uh, that is aligned to the United States is captured by Russian forces. Um, they're going to be paraded out. They're going to be claimed that they were a mercenary. And there's going to be tremendous political pressure on their originating government to do something about that individual, uh, to help that individual. You could imagine a mother or father in tears as they're worried about the fate of their child. You could imagine those relatives saying, look, you know, um, government official so-and-so said it's great to go fight, and my son actually listened, and now the government is abandoning them. And that sort of political uh, pressure can create real dilemmas, even if the individuals in question, you know, simply went on their own and had no link to the government at all. And how have, you know, major Western governments, the U.S., the U.K., countries in Europe, dealt with this issue, right? What has been if you could sort of take, you know, countries separately or, or sort of treat them as sort of an aggregate of each other, what's been the way that they have presented their positions on citizens going to Ukraine? As you'd expect, uh, people are all over the map, and including sometimes within countries. So in the United Kingdom, a senior government official initially encouraged people to go fight and then backtrack from it. Uh, some countries, uh, Canada, the UK, the Czech Republic have have laws that restrict the participation of their nationals in wars when the country itself is not at war. Um, other countries don't have those legal restrictions, but the governments have been much more cautious. And so I think many governments are still figuring out what their policies should be and are lagging behind their people, that there are people who are already trying to go to fight and the governments simply have not made up their mind. So I want to move a bit toward the longer term concern. So if you could sketch out just in general terms, and then we can dive into the specifics, what are sort of the bigger picture, you know, two to three to 10 years out concerns you see with the inflow of, of foreign fighters to Ukraine? So a couple of things that I'm thinking about. Uh, one is that we have seen white supremacist elements fighting in Ukraine since 2014 against Russia. And this has not been a huge part of the Ukrainian military effort. Uh, it's easy to focus too much attention on this one element. But there is a question of whether some white supremacists will see this as an opportunity to learn how to fight better and become better networked, and that they will be a version of the jihadists. They'll come back from the conflict, better able to use violence, and in touch internationally with much better networks. The specifics of the Ukraine conflict make this a little less likely. They're fighting Russia, which has portrayed itself as a champion of Christian conservative values. And so it's not an easy enemy. In addition, of course, Ukraine is led by a Jewish president who has had you know, his family directly you know, shattered by the Holocaust. 
So the narrative that this is a fight of you know, white people who are Aryans against you know, Jews and other enemies really doesn't fit what's going on in Ukraine. But that's at least one thing to watch is simply how is the far right perceiving this conflict and are some of their people going to gain combat experience? Um, another is whether the foreigners themselves are participating in the war in any unusual way, especially with regard to human rights abuses. Uh, we have seen this problem in past conflicts where foreigners can be more brutal. And that's something that needs to be watched because some of these people may be involved in war crimes or otherwise uh, deserve special attention in a very uh, negative and frightening way. There is also a broader question of government policy when it comes to people who are captured by Russia um, or otherwise directly affected by the war. Um, it's easy to say, you know, look, the U.S. government didn't send them, so there's no government responsibility, but that in practice is going to be very hard to avoid. And that problem may be simply a couple individuals, but it could be a much larger effort, especially if there's a uh, military unit primarily composed of Americans and Canadians or others where there are large numbers of people taken prisoner. And that's going to be a long-term challenge if that happens. So I want to return to the first part of your answer there and, and hear a bit more about the white supremacist threat here. So it makes sort of intuitive sense what you're saying, but I wonder for maybe for people who are a bit less familiar about the sort of dynamic of a group of people with general ideological you know, coherence coming together in a place to fight and to spend a lot of time together. One, sort of what's what's the pattern and, and what is specifically potentially so dangerous about that? And two, you know, some people will be familiar with sort of the history of the more recent history of white of white nationalists or white supremacist groups in Ukraine. But I wonder if you could just give a bit more background about that as well. Sure. So Ukraine does have political elements that are fascist or neo-fascist. And that's certainly not the majority or close to the majority. That's certainly not what the conflict's about today. But that has existed to some degree. And we saw this after 2014, where we saw this unit, the Azov Battalion, that was embracing neo-Nazi symbols. And one of their badges was um, had been modeled after one used by the 2nd Panzer Division in Nazi Germany. And again, this wasn't a huge uh, part of the Ukrainian military effort. But the fact that it was there and it persisted was, and I would say is of concern, and it was inspiring. So you did see other white supremacists go to join the fight. And part of that was, this is a community that greatly admires military prowess, and many of them wanted to kind of gain the glory. Uh, more broadly, this problem, uh, when people congregate, there are several things that can happen. Uh, one, to say the obvious, is they just can become more skilled. And part of that is through training. So something Al-Qaeda invested tremendously in was a massive training apparatus where it really transformed the raw recruits it had into to very dangerous people. But even without training, military experience changes and hardens people. So it makes them more adept at violence. It makes them steadier in a crisis. So there are a lot of things people gain from that experience aside from, from training. It also makes people... Uh, share narratives more broadly, that you might have people who are coming from different parts of the world for Ukraine, but while they're coming together, they learn about other things. So if you're a white supremacist in the United States, 
you might be focused on, you know, a classic example, just anti-Black racism. Uh, if you're a white supremacist coming from somewhere in Europe, it might be about Muslim workers who are working in your country. And those causes will start to come together and they'll have a broader perspective where they're willing to help each other in ways they wouldn't in the past. And then just simply practically, they get to know each other. So you have a lot of connections where people can turn to each other for money, for expertise, for inspiration, and those connections can show up in strange ways. So if there's a future problem or conflict, they'll be able to draw on the capital they've developed fighting together to work together in the future more effectively. And have we seen signs so far of, of white supremacist groups using Ukraine as a sort of recruiting tool or, or call to action or something like that? So we did before the latest crisis. So I mentioned the Azov Battalion. We have seen some people go. However, in the current conflict, we've certainly seen white supremacists talk about it. Uh, it does not seem, at least by my very superficial, limited understanding so far, that anywhere close to the majority of the people um, have any white supremacist inclinations. I don't think that's that the volunteer is going now, that's their orientation. Uh, but we do see this concern and things can change over time. So I don't want to oversell this one. It's really easy to talk about one particular strand and ignore the vast majority. However, this is definitely something to keep an eye on. I want to pivot a bit and, and talk about, so your last experience really watching foreign fighters and you know you wrote a book about the subject was in the context of the Islamic State and people headed over to the Islamic State. I wonder what you make of sort of the comparative way that foreign fighters in that conflict have been covered versus, you know, the way that people tend to think and talk and, you know, think and talk and, you know, write about foreign fighters in this conflict. Like, what do you, there's some obvious differences as to what's going on here, right? Like the cause of the government of Ukraine is, is obviously a much more noble one than going to fight for the Islamic State. But I'm curious what you've made of sort of just the differences in how, these things get talked about, the framing and, and all that types of stuff? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. And it's worth going back before the Islamic State began to dominate things in Syria in 2014, because the Syrian civil war you know, really starts to commence in 2011, 2012. So you had a time period where some of the people going, you know, the Islamic State didn't exist. There were predecessor organizations, um, but they weren't going explicitly to join this one. And in their eyes, it was the same thing. You had a truly brutal government. You know, as bad as Russia is, the Assad government is worse. Uh, it was devastating the entire country. It was producing millions of refugees. It was you know, torturing and slaughtering on a massive scale. And governments around the world were condemning it. So you had people going who said, you know, I'm trying to fight evil. And it, and it was fighting evil. And they were frustrated that they were being called terrorists because in their eyes, they were defending their community. And probably the, the best single work on the study of terrorism is, is by my Georgetown colleague, Bruce Hoffman, called Inside Terrorism. It's one of the classics in the field. And he has a line there, which is the terrorist sees himself as an altruist, right? He sees himself as sacrificing his own personal good for the broader community. And that was certainly true for the early fighters going on in Syria. And obviously the reason that the perspective was different was first, many began to fight for jihadist groups, which the United States and its allies saw as as bad and at times worse as the Assad regime. 
And the other was this concern that when they're going to Syria, they'll come back and blow themselves up and otherwise um, engage in terrorist activity, which is not true in Ukraine. So I think those perspectives and those differences really matter. But I do think it's important to say that most of the people who are going to these fights see themselves as trying to help those who are suffering, trying to help those who are vulnerable. And you know, going way back to some of the conflicts I mentioned at the beginning, in my book, I have quotes from some of the people who fought um, in Israel's War of Independence. And the specific words sound like people who are going to fight, who went to fight on behalf of the Islamic State. They talk about, you know, someone needs to be a person who defends the innocent. And regardless of how, at least I feel, and I suspect other listeners feel about the differences between these these causes, in order to understand those who are going, it's important to recognize that many of them see themselves as heroes in their own movies. I wonder what do like what do you feel like people miss when they frame what's going on in Ukraine in terms of people from other countries going to join the conflict in sort of this lens of coded in in a lens of a very sympathetic framing, like reflexively sympathetic framing, right? Like what do you what are the analytical things that get missed when when this component of the conflict is discussed in those terms? Uh, so first of all, there's a simple military question, which is how much good are these people doing? Right. Is it really just a propaganda thing where Ukrainian leaders can say the world has rallied around us, but they don't matter much on the ground or are they making a difference? And I think often their military impact is quite negligible and that's important to recognize. There's also a question of why are at least some of these people going? And I mentioned that many see themselves as heroes, but heroes for what? Are they defending Ukraine against Russian aggression? Are they there to learn military skills to, you know, become better white supremacists? Like, what is their cause? And that's important to be able to sort that out among the potential volunteers. But a particular one, I think, is simply what this says about the governments in question. Um, to me, governments need to make up their minds about whether they want to allow and encourage private war. And I'm, I'm against it. And, but to me, that means that if governments want to show they care about Ukraine, they have to step up other activities. And that could be military aid. It could be humanitarian aid. It could be caring for refugees. There's a lot that governments can do. And I really wish the governments would try to direct citizens who are motivated by the horrible things happening in Ukraine, that they would try to direct them towards those humanitarian activities where they could have much more impact and where their energy would find a good purpose. I think that is a great place to end for today. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure, Jacob, and thanks for arranging this. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and the podcast is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Pachehau. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan. If you like the podcast, please check out our other podcasts like Chatter, Lawfare Noble, Rational Security, and The Aftermath. And as always... Thanks so much for listening. Imagine. 
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.